Matthew chapter number 12, looking forward to what God has for us in the scriptures today. And as we have seen in our study through the gospel of Matthew, um, as the people of the time that Jesus lived in began to, uh, uh, began to experience the life and the ministry of Jesus, when we come to Matthew chapter 11 and into Matthew chapter 12, we begin to see how they responded to the ministry of Christ. Now, the ushers are going through and doing what I asked them to do. They're handing out some sermon notes to any of you who might want one. So if you didn't get one, uh, we'll pass them out as long as, as long as we have them, and that's what they're doing there. We'll begin to see how people begin to respond to the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 11, we saw four predominant responses. Uh, the first response we saw was doubt. Some responded to Jesus with doubt. Some responded with disdain. Uh, some responded with disregard. They were apathetic towards Christ and all these incredible things he was doing. And yet there were also some who responded with dependence. They chose to place their faith in this one Jesus who claimed to be and in fact was the Messiah. But there was a lot of fanaticism, we could say, to put it in one way, around the ministry of Jesus Christ. And there was one group in particular that this fanaticism about Jesus provoked them to envy. And that group was the religious elite of that day and time known as as the Pharisees. Boy, the Pharisees didn't like all the attention that Jesus and his ministry were getting. And so in Matthew chapter 12, we find there's a significant turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that takes place. In Matthew chapter 12 is that moment when the religious elite went from just being scoffing and accusing to actually begin to plot to kill Jesus. Of course, all of this continued through the life of Jesus until it culminated in them convincing uh, the nation of Israel corporately to crucify their Messiah on the cross of Calvary. And one reason this whole world rejected Jesus is because of how he challenged the traditions of men with the truth of God. I want you to listen to what I just said. He challenged the traditions of men with the truth of God. See, the Pharisees had created an entire system of man-made regulations. We often call it the Talmud. Um, and it was just a, a, a book filled with man-made traditions. Now, the goal was to do all of these things to help the people of God to keep the law in a better way. But in the, midst of the, in the midst of all the years that had transpired since all of these rabbinical writings had been, put, had been put together, they had come to a place where they began to exalt the traditions of men over the actual truth of God. And to put it in a term that we understand today, what they had enshrouded themselves in was a man-made religion. And that's what Judaism was. In fact, later in the book of Acts... One of the apostles refers to Judaism as the religion of the Jews because that's what it was. They required all of these rules and regulations for the people of Israel to have to live by in order to be accepted by God. I, we'll talk about what some of those rules and regulations were in just a moment. But I want you to understand this. To these people who were overworked and overburdened by all of this religion, Jesus had just given an invitation, which we talked about last week. 
He had invited them to come to him to find rest from all of this religious burden. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, he said, Come unto me, Jesus said, All ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And boy, Jesus invites all people to come to Him to find this rest from the burden that is often placed upon us as individuals, and oftentimes it comes at the hand of religion. And I say to you a statement that I want you to understand very clearly today. Jesus offers you something greater than what religion could ever offer to you. I want you to look at verse number 6 of our text. And we'll come back for the whole story in a moment down through verse 13, but just verse 6 for now. Jesus said, But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Jesus lays claim to being this greater one. Something greater than what religion has to present to you. You see, Jesus presents a manner of living. Well, we could say, like we looked at last week, a yoke. He presents a manner of living that sets you free to live the life that God always intended for you to be able to live. See, all that man-made religion does is enslave people with rules and regulations that they can never possibly live up to in order for them to be able to have the favor of God. But in exchange for that bondage, the Bible tells us that Jesus invites you to let Him carry the load of making you right with God, which He did through the cross. And now He sets you free through your faith in Him to work not for God's favor, but from God's favor. That's the incredible richness of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Now there's an old Danish theologian and philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, if I'm saying his last name right. He used an illustration that I thought about when I was looking at what the Lord had us preach this week. He compared, in one of his writings, religion A with religion B. Now, religion A is a faith that is outward in form only. Like 2 Timothy 3.5 talks about, it has the form of godliness but denies the real power thereof. It's not real. Religion A is the type of religion that requires you to, well, attend church every week and, and make sure you check all the boxes and, and wear all the right things. But inside, there's nothing real. It's an outward practice not an inward reality. That's religion A. Religion B, on the other hand, is based in a personal commitment of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. The people who, who enjoy religion B are people who know Jesus Christ personally and do not strive to live the Christian life because they feel like they have to, but because they want to because of what Christ has done for them. He compares religion A with religion B. And then he says, most people have experienced nothing more beyond religion A, which is why they hate religion. Because it's all rules, all regulation. But when you experience religion B, when you experience a true, abiding relationship with Christ as your Savior, you experience the rest that Jesus offers us as we studied last week. 
You will gladly forsake religion A for something that's real and something that's abiding. I want you to listen to me. Some of you live today enslaved to religious bondage. Some of you, you've grown up perhaps in a home or in a church that very much sounds like religion A. All the things that you were required to do and all the stipulations, you can identify with it very well. You have tried so hard to keep all the rules. You have tried so hard to be good enough for God, but you're tired because it's exhausting and you're never going to measure up. And it is to you that Jesus invites to come to Him to find a true place of rest and security and what He has done for you. So I have a question for you today. Are you sick of religion? Well, good. Because Jesus invites you to forsake it and come find rest in Him. And that's what we're going to see as we study this text of Scripture today. So let's pray together and ask for God to continue to speak to our hearts. Our Father, we come before you this morning and we're grateful for the opportunity to open your word. And as we study the truth that you have for us today, I pray for strength, strength of voice, and thought and heart to be able to declare the things that you have taught me from your word. And Lord, it doesn't really matter what I think about the Bible. All that matters is what the Bible says. And I pray that you would allow that word, your word, to come forth predominantly today. And Lord, allow me to say the things that you once said. And I pray your Holy Spirit would take the words spoken and apply them to every heart and life. And I pray if there's someone who is enslaved to a religion, that you would deliver them today through a relationship with Jesus Christ as personal Savior. And I pray, God, that you'd speak as only your Holy Spirit can through the preaching of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Now, in this account, Matthew chapter 12, we're going to see three circumstances that reveal how Jesus offers you something greater than religion. And the first circumstance we'll look at, I want you to see, the first one is the condemnation. The condemnation. Look at verses 1 and 2. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Verse number 1 and 2, the Bible says, At that time, after Jesus had made this great invitation... Come unto, me, come unto me and find rest. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. And his disciples were in hunger and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. As we begin to enter into this account in the scripture Great emphasis is placed on a particular day and the things happening on that day, and it was a day known as the Sabbath day. The Hebrews would often refer to this day as Shabbat, and it's a, it's a word that was transliterated from uh, the Greek translation to give us our Sabbath of today. But the, the Hebrew practice of Shabbat uh, was something that took place from sunset on Friday evening to sunset on Saturday evening. And the name Shabbat, it literally means rest. Where did it come from? Well, it was, it was ordained by God on the seventh day after the world was created. 
It was, it was ordained as a principle of rest. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it or set it apart because that in it He had rested from all His work which God created and made. And so as God rested on the seventh day, so He instructed men to do so as well. But it's important you understand that God instituted the principle of the Sabbath, not as a law, but as a principle to teach men an important thing that all of us need. And that is to take time to rest. But it was not ordained originally as a law. It was ordained as a principle, just like marriage was ordained before the law as well, as a principle to govern mankind. Now, in the Old Testament law, the Sabbath day was later instituted as a, as a type or a picture that pointed to Jesus, the one who was going to come one day and provide the eternal rest that only He can provide. And it's interesting to me that in the New Testament, if you read through your New Testament, the New Testament never commands the observance of the Sabbath day. Never one time. You can read it from front to back and you'll never find one instance well, we're commanded as believers today to practice the Sabbath day. But instead, God calls believers to find their Sabbath rest in their faith in Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath. He is everything that the ceremonial day of the Sabbath in the Old Testament pointed to. We can find that rest in Jesus Christ every single day. Praise the Lord for that. But boy, this was a very significant day heading back to our story for the Jewish people. The Jews revered Shabbat, or the Sabbath day, with, with a cult-like obsession. In fact, if you study into it, the, the rabbis uh, of the people of Israel had hedged around the Sabbath day with over 1,000 restrictions. In the Talmud, which is their list of regulations and rules for how to keep the law, in that, in that book alone, there are 24 chapters mandating how the Israeli people were supposed to observe the Sabbath day. 24 chapters. Let me give you a couple examples of some of what they said they had to do on those days. This is just a couple. You couldn't throw an object with one hand and catch it with the other. So jugglers, you're out, okay? That was considered to be work. You couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath lest you accidentally spill water on the floor and thereby wash it. It was considered a work. I go down the line, and uh, you, have, you ever, have you ever gone through the states and read some of those ridiculous laws that people have? I think it's in Louisiana. It's, a, it's illegal to, uh, to uh, wash, no, illegal to put your alligator in your bathtub. <laughs> now, sometimes I hear these stories, and I think, I would really like to know what happened to necessitate that being a law, okay? There's some ridiculous laws that they had and they put all these stipulations and regulations on the Sabbath day and the result of all this extra biblical tradition is that the Jews had actually lost sight of what the Sabbath day was supposed to be all about. And what was that? Help me. Rest! But instead of it being a day of rest, it had become a day of rigorous work. In fact, there are a lot of people that probably thought, I, I, I can't wait to start work tomorrow so I can rest from having to do all this stuff on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? 
And Jesus knew about all this extra biblical tradition that these people had. And so when he, and he and his disciples were walking through the field and they got hungry on the Sabbath day, he actually encouraged them to partake of the barley in the field on that Sabbath day. It's important to note here that what Jesus did was not a violation of Scripture, but it was a violation of their traditions. That's what it violated. He wasn't disobeying God's law. He was disobeying man's law. And there is a big difference between those two things. The Old Testament law actually allowed people to partake of their neighbor's fields. And, 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 God's, and God's Old Testament law also allowed for people to be able to eat food on the Sabbath day. So there was nothing wrong in the sight of God with what Jesus and his disciples were doing. And I, I make this point because it is important we understand that Jesus never broke the law. He made clear he did not come to break the law. He came here to fulfill the law. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, Think, think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so nothing was wrong with the things that Jesus was doing. And yet when the Pharisees saw what Jesus was allowing his disciples to do, and perhaps he himself was also doing, we don't know for sure, when they saw what they were doing, they immediately tried to condemn their actions. Look at verse 2 again with me. In verse 2, the Bible says, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath. Now, the, the, in, in all of their traditions and how they had broken down the keeping of the Sabbath and put all these extra biblical rules and regulations on it, they considered what the disciples were doing in the field that day to be a form of farming because they were picking food out of the field and eating it. And that's, why, that's what they were referring to here. The truth is, the disciples weren't farming. They were feasting. They were hungry. And the fields on the outskirts of the city were actually a place where poor people could go and be able to eat. And be able to find something to eat. And so that's why Jesus and his disciples found themselves there. And so here are these Pharisees condemning the actions of Jesus and his disciples. And I want you to remember this application here. Man-made religion ever seeks to enslave people with extra-biblical regulations. I'll say it again. Man-made religion ever seeks to enslave people with extra-biblical regulations. If you don't do all the things that they tell you to do, then you are condemned. You don't dress the way they tell you to dress. If you don't uh, uh, act the way they tell you to act. If you don't go to places they tell you to go. And, and, and so on and so forth. Then you are out. Then you are not as godly. Then you are not as good. And that's exactly the danger we see happening from these Pharisees to Christ. And it still happens today. Warren Wiersbe said, There is no rest in mere religious observances. And if you have ever been enshrouded or entrapped in a religion, you know that better than anybody else. There's no rest in trying to keep all the rules and do all the things without having a life-giving and abiding relationship with the Lord Jesus. I think this is interesting. As the disciples walked through that field that day, do you think they were thinking about how to keep all the little rules that the Pharisees had made in the Talmud? I don't. I'll tell you why. They were walking with the lawgiver. <laughs> they, 
Don't you think that if it was wrong for them to do something, Jesus would have said, hey, don't do that? Absolutely. But as long as they were abiding in a relationship with Christ, they didn't have to worry about checking all the boxes that other men had made for them. They were with Jesus. And boy, there's a great distinction that is made there. And I want you to understand this. Jesus doesn't enslave us with religion, but He emancipates us through a relationship with Him. Listen, the New Testament makes clear that when you walk in step with Jesus, Jesus helps you to understand the right things to do. And He also helps you to understand through conviction of the Holy Spirit when you're going the wrong direction. And it is all a vital ministry of His Holy Spirit that He puts into the life of every single believer. Galatians 5.17 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so as believers, we are no longer governed by a dead religion, but we are governed by a living relationship with our Savior. And so we see that Jesus offers us something that is so much better than what a condemning religion could ever offer to us. He invites us to exchange our to-do list religion for a life-giving relationship with Him. Something so much better. If you are bound in the chains of religion, you don't know the Lord. Today would be a great day for you to leave it behind and come receive the invitation that Jesus is giving you today. To come to the Lord Jesus and let Him set you free. So we see the first example of how Jesus offers us something greater than religion is found in the condemnation. But then let's hasten on to the second, uh, the second circumstance, and that is the clarification. Let's look at the clarification. Look at verses 3 down through verse 8. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Verse 3, the Bible says, But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was in hunger and they, were with, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat of the shewbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When Jesus stood accused by these religious individuals, He corrected their corrupt traditions with Scripture. And I love this. He said two times to them, to these teachers of the law, He said, have you ever read it? In other words, He's telling them, they're the preachers, they're the teachers of that day and time. He's saying, have you guys ever actually read your Bibles? It's a good question. By the way, the Bible does a great job at correcting false religion and, and helping us see through the lies that are, that are woven by the traditions of men. That's why Jesus said in John 5, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. He told us to go to our Bibles, and Jesus doesn't try to even address their tradition. He just takes them right to what the Bible actually says. And he referenced two passages of Scripture to refute their false accusations here. Now, uh, they had accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath law, but Jesus used the Bible to show in no uncertain terms that that was certainly not the case. 
And so the first example Jesus referred to was uh, an example from the kings. Uh, There in in verses 3 and 4, he talks about Israel's most beloved king, King David. And the story comes from 1 Samuel chapter number 21 when, uh, when uh, David goes to Nob. And there in Nob was a, was a house of the Lord and the priest Ahimelech was there. And David was the, the rightful king of Israel. He had been anointed as the king of Israel. But King Saul did not want to relinquish the throne. And so David was being chased and pursued and Saul was trying to kill him. And because he wasn't given his rightful place by his nation, he was forced into fleeing and hiding with his mighty men. And that was what had brought them to run to Nob and to see Ahimelech the priest. And while they were there, David told Ahimelech, I'm hungry. These guys are hungry. He said, you got anything to eat? And he said, well, I've got the holy bread, but the priests are the only ones who are supposed to eat that. And David said, I'll take it. And he ate of that bread. By the way, in that circumstance there, God never condemned King David for his actions. Now understand this. Jesus was also Israel's rightful king. But they had rejected him. He came to his own, but his own received him not. And so in this account, we find Jesus out in fields picking barley to eat, which was the place the poor people were supposed to go to eat. And he's being accused for for breaking man's tradition while he was doing it. Jesus' point is, listen, if an earthly king wasn't condemned for taking the same action, certainly the king of kings and the Lord of lords is not condemned. And he goes on to accept the second example. He gives an example from the kings, but then he also gives an example from the priests. And in verse number, uh, verse number five, he talks about how the priests, they violate the Sabbath law every Saturday. In fact, for the priests in the Old Testament law, they had to do twice as much work on the Sabbath day. They had to offer extra offerings, and that means they had to get up, and they had to start a fire, and they, and they had to be able to kill the offering and, and slay the offering, and they had to bake the shoe bread on Saturday, and all these things were happening, which were clear violations of what God had commanded to be done in the Old Testament law on the Sabbath day, and yet they weren't considered to be guilty of breaking the law and doing those things. Now listen to me. Jesus is the great high priest. And in the exercise of his priestly service, he has full prerogative to do that work however so he needs to. These were the points that Jesus was making to these these, uh, uh, Pharisees that were trying to accuse him. And it's at this point that Jesus used those illustrations to clarify what the truth actually was. And I want you to see these three clarifications Jesus gave. The first one is this. Jesus is a better sanctuary. He is a better sanctuary. Verse number 6. Let's read it out loud together. Look in your Bibles at verse number 6. Let's read it out loud. It says, But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Listen, the temple was built as a place where God's people could come to worship God. And yet the problem was that the Jewish people had got caught up in focusing on the place instead of on the person. In the Old Testament... The temple or the tabernacle had originally been the place where the presence of God abode. In fact, right in the middle of the tabernacle in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. But as you read in your Old Testament, you find that the glory of God had long since departed from that old building. 
You read Ezekiel chapter 9 and 10, it becomes very clear God's presence was no longer actually in that place. But when Jesus Christ stepped down from glory and came down to this earth, the Shekinah glory of God, the Holy Spirit of God filled him. And once again, God's presence was down here on this earth. And the point that Jesus Christ was making here is that our faith is no longer limited to a place. Our faith is to be found in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Now sometimes I've had people say, well, I just feel so much closer to God when I come to church. I just feel so much closer to God when I get up in the mountains, or however it may be. And I think I understand to a certain extent what people are saying. You tune out distractions and whatnot. But you understand there is absolutely nothing significant about this building. There's absolutely nothing significant about this altar. You can't be closer to God by praying at this altar any more than you would at your bedside every morning. Listen, our faith does not rest in a place, in a building. Our faith rests in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to a place to find God. You have to go to a person, and that person is Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. And so Jesus says that he's offering a better sanctuary to the people. The second clarification he makes is that Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Look at verse 7. The Bible says, But if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, Jesus quoted a portion of an Old Testament verse in Hosea chapter 6 and verse number 6. He does it again. He's already quoted it once earlier in Matthew. But he does it again here to make something clear to these people who were so very lost in their religion. Listen to me on this. The Old Testament sacrificial system was never meant to be enough to make a man right before God. It all pointed to the superior sacrifice that was coming, and that was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so instead of requiring endless sacrifices, Jesus indicated here that he delighted in showing mercy by offering up himself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 10, the Bible says that we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. How many of you are thankful that it only took one final sacrifice from Christ to be able to eternally save our souls? Praise God for that. And Jesus is saying, I'm offering you a better sacrifice. But you don't understand. You're so caught up in keeping all your rules and doing all the things that you think you've got to do to be right with God when you don't even understand what my heart is, is I don't want to condemn you. I want to save you. In fact, I want to sacrifice myself so that you can be forgiven and so that you can have a relationship with God through faith in me. Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse number 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And so I say to you this morning, what Jesus is teaching us here is that God wants mercy, not religious sacrifice. God's heart is a God of love, not a heart of legalism. You think, well, I dress right and do it right and do all the things that that the church tells me I'm supposed to do, I'll go to heaven. You've got it wrong. You need a better sacrifice. You can't offer it. 
You can only obtain it through trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for you. You see, Jesus is a better sanctuary. He's a better sacrifice. But then the third clarification he gives is that he is a better Sabbath. A better Sabbath. Look at verse 8 with me, if you would. The Bible says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of what? The Sabbath day. Lord even of the Sabbath day. Now he makes two claims to divinity here. Makes two claims to being God here. He calls himself the Son of Man. That's an Old Testament reference to the Messiah. And he calls himself Lord, the Master, the Sovereign of the universe. And what Jesus literally said here is that he is the Lord of rest. The Lord of the Sabbath day. In other words, what he has to say about this issue is all that really matters. He's got the final word. He's the Lord of the Sabbath and I, I think it's important we note here that whatever Jesus has to say trumps whatever man's, man's religion has to say. In a parallel account in Mark chapter number 2 and verse 27, Jesus made clear that as the sovereign over the Sabbath, the Sabbath was, uh, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I don't have a lot of time to park here, but understand something. Listen, God did not ordain the ceremonial day of the Sabbath to, to bind men into the practice that the Jews had made it out to be. He ordained the seventh day as a principle that all of us should understand and follow. And we need to understand this principle in American society because we have a problem with being so driven that we never take time to rest. We never take time to rest in the Lord. I'm not saying the principle shouldn't be followed. But listen, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for the benefit of man and, and not, to, not to enslave men to a, a system or order that they cannot possibly keep. And he was making a clarification for us here. And I say to you that the Sabbath Jesus offers to you is so much better than the one that man's religion offers to you. You see, the Sabbath Jesus offers is for you to come and find your rest in Him. Every single day, to come and find a place of rest in His finished work for your sins and His sufficient grace for whatever you may face on any given day. That's the rest that Jesus offers to those of us who come to Him. And so I, I say to you that Jesus offers you something so much greater than what a constricting religion can offer to you. He does not want to limit your faith to only coming to a place to be able to talk to God, but He wants you to find it in a person who will never leave you or forsake you, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not want you to uh, uh, find your uh, significance or your favor with God through your religious sacrifice, but He wants you to trust in His once-for-all sacrifice that forever sanctifies you from your sin. And he does not want you... To think that you can only find a place of rest in one day of the week. But every day, realize, Jesus says, come to me and find rest. He's your Sabbath rest. See, Jesus is offering something that's so much greater. Something greater than religion. We see it in the uh, condemnation that was given. We see it in the clarification that was given. And I'll just have time to mention this last one. We also see it in this third circumstance, and that is in the confirmation that was given. The confirmation. Now Jesus had just made some incredible claims about himself. He claimed to be the Messiah. And he claimed to be the sovereign Lord of the universe. And by this, make no mistake, Jesus was claiming to be God. 
And the Jews who heard him understood that. We need to understand it too. And so Jesus, in following that statement, proceeded to confirm the claims he had made in unmistakable terms. I want you to see how, starting in verse 9. The Bible says, And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? Now, after hearing Jesus make these incredible claims to being God in the flesh, those Jews were already looking for an opportunity to be able to question him and to prove that he wasn't who he said he was. And so he went into the synagogue on that Sabbath day. That's where all the Jews were supposed to go on the Sabbath day. And when he walks in the synagogue, the Bible says, there those Pharisees found their opportunity to try to accuse Jesus. In their Talmud, or in their laws of tradition about how they were supposed to practice the Sabbath day, one of the laws that were in there is that you could not perform um, any, uh, any type of medical service for someone unless it was life or death. Now, I'm, I'm butchering what it actually said, but I'm giving you a paraphrase of what it actually said. You could not perform any type of medical help, couldn't help relieve someone's pain, bandage anything for someone unless it was considered to be life or death. And Jesus walks into the synagogue this day, and here's this man who's lived most of his life probably with a withered hand. Withered just means dried up. It was dried, dried up, a dried up and shriveled hand. A hand that he really couldn't even use. It's probably just, probably just fixed in place. The Pharisees looked at this man, and then they looked at Jesus, and they thought, he's not going to be able to help himself, is he? He's going to heal this guy, isn't he? But he's not supposed to. It's the Sabbath day. Because that's not life or death. And so they come to Jesus, and they ask him that question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now, they already knew that their traditions said it wasn't lawful. And their whole intention was to try to accuse Jesus of doing something that they thought he shouldn't do. And uh, it's interesting to me, religionists are always looking to find fault with people who are breaking their rules. Right? It's been this way everywhere I've ever gone. They make all their own rules. Then you have to keep them. If you don't keep them, you're wrong. It doesn't matter if they're biblical or not. They just like to use it to say, well, we're more godly than you are. You don't dress like we do. You don't act like we do. You don't talk like we do. You don't go to the places like we do. Oh, you do that? We don't do that. Okay? You know what I'm talking about. This is what they were trying to do to Jesus here, to hold them to their standard, not God's standard. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 11, And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath day. Boy, Jesus began to expose the hypocrisy of their religion. Now that same law book or traditions book that they had, which would not allow Jesus, according to their tradition, to heal this man with the withered hand, would allow them, if one of their, one of their sheep fell into a pit, to go pull it out on the Sabbath day. So if you can understand this, you can save an animal, but you can't save a man. Alright, that's work. So they had an exception for animals, no exception for men. Now, I'm not for animal cruelty. I'm not saying that. But what Jesus does say here 
is that the life of a human is much more valuable than the life of an animal. You say, are you an animal rights activist? No. Okay? Now the Bible says you ought to regard the life of your beast. All right? And I think we should treat, to treat the creation that God has made as stewards over well. But understand something. Human life is much more superior than any other type of life. And that doesn't come from me. That comes from the book. It's important we understand that. And I could park on that for a little while, but we're already out of time, so I'm not going to. Um, but Jesus makes this point to them, and then he declared in verse 12 that it is indeed permissible to do good on the Sabbath day. By the way, in this, Jesus was exhibiting, he was confirming that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Because the Pharisees were supposed to be the chief, the elite ones, to tell all the other people how it was supposed to be. But Jesus stands up and says, no, you're wrong. You can do right on the Sabbath day. And he's exercising his right as the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus has the prerogative to tell us how we're supposed to do things. By the way, if the way our church, the way you do anything conflicts with what the Bible says, guess who's wrong? I'm going to give you a clue. It's not God. You need to go God's way. That's what Jesus was doing. He said, no, get, listen, Pharisees. You're wrong. Your traditions are wrong. That's not, what, that's not what God said. That's not what God means. By the way, not doing good on the Sabbath day or any other day would be wrong. The Bible says, therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. There's never a wrong time to do the right thing. That's the point that Jesus was making to these people who had been so blinded by their religion. And so after all this, Jesus proved he was the Lord of the Sabbath by doing something that if he wasn't true, if he wasn't genuine, he wouldn't have been able to do. Jesus proved he was the Lord of the Sabbath by breaking their tradition and healing that man on the Sabbath day. Listen, if he wasn't truly God, if he wasn't truly the Lord of the Sabbath, he would not have had the power to be able to do what he did. But in confirmation that he was everything he claimed to be, Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath day. And I say to you, Jesus is everything that he ever claimed to be. And you are not taking a risk to forsake your old dead religion to come trust in the Lord Jesus. I guarantee you that. Oh, in closing here, I love how Jesus healed this man. Look at verse 13. And we'll be done. The Bible says, Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. You say, what's so significant about that? He couldn't. <laughs> he had a withered hand. That was something physically, humanly, he was not able to do. And after this great dialogue takes place, Jesus looks over this poor guy who's been ostracized at synagogue that day. And he says, Hey, lift up your hand. Now, you might think, that's kind of cruel. Asking a guy to do something like that that he can't do. Jesus knew that. But you understand something. Jesus never asks someone to do something that he won't enable them to do. And when Jesus said, lift up your hand, that man had just enough faith to listen to the word of God and say, you know what, if Jesus told me to do it, I've never really been able to do that since this happened, but, oh, there it goes. <laughs> The Bible says as soon as he lifted it up, his hand was healed. See, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing something. Faith comes by hearing what? 
the Word of God. That old, that old withered hand man, he heard the Word of Jesus on that day and he put his faith in what Jesus said and when he lifted up his hand, his hand was restored whole. I'm going to tell you something. Some of you have had your life withered by religion. Some of you have had your life withered by sin and you are hearing the message today but you think, I can't. I can't give it up. I can't walk away. I've lived my whole life in this religion. I can't do it. And you're right. You can't. But if Jesus is calling you today, if you'd be willing to put your faith in His Word, and when He says, come to Me, believe in Me, receive Me as your Savior, and you'll have rest. If He's saying that to you today, it doesn't matter if you think you can. If He's asking you, He's going to give you the ability to do it. If you put faith in Him, you can come. You can come. I'm going to tell you something. What He's offering us is so much greater than your old dead religion. So would you be willing to forsake it? Would you be willing to throw out that religion A and come embrace religion B? Would you be willing to throw out all that ritual and that dead religion and come enjoy a true relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior. And to you Christians, this is not just for people who are lost. To you Christians who allow, who've allowed yourself to become enshrouded in all the rules and all the regulations and you've lost sight of your relationship with the Lord. I invite you to come back to the source of it all. I invite you to come back and begin to enjoy your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ once again. Come find your place of rest.